0: My name is Jason Alexander, the star of Bedtime Stories of the Ingleside Inn, a brand new scripted comedy podcast in which I play Palm Springs hotelier Mel Haber, who in the 1970s turned the rundown Ingleside Inn into the best-kept secret getaway for Hollywood's elite thieves and mobsters. The series also stars Brian Jordan Alvarez, Michael McKean, Richard Kind, Lance Bass, and more. You can find Bedtime Stories of the Ingleside Inn on SiriusXM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't
1: forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode.
2: This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast.
0: What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me white supremacists pro- and pro- White right like supremacist right right and right. Proud boys, stand back and stand by.
2: You know how it goes. One day you're on top of the world, and the next you're going away for seditious conspiracy. And yet another blow to the radical right-wing lemmings who blindly followed the former president off a cliff. Four members of the Proud Boys, including their leader, Enrique Tarrio, were convicted Thursday of seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep Donald Trump in power after his 2020 election defeat. And that's what you get when you lead a violent mob to attack our capital. You don't get a ticker tape parade, no heroes' welcome, just hard time in a federal prison. And I know from experience that blind loyalty to Donald J. Trump comes at a very high price.
0: Today's verdict makes clear that the Justice Department will do everything in its power to defend the American people and American democracy.
1: United States Attorney General Merrick Garland securing seditious conspiracy convictions against the former national chairman of the far-right Proud Boys and three other members of the extremist group. Prosecutors argued they were prepared for all-out war to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president.
2: After seven days of deliberation, jurors in the case failed to reach a decision on the sedition charge for just one of the defendants, Dominic Pizzola. But don't worry, he was convicted of other serious felonies. In fact, all five defendants were convicted of a third conspiracy count for interfering with the duties of members of Congress. On the conspiracy counts alone, the men could face up to 50 years in prison. So chalk up another win for the Justice Department as they cross the Proud Boys off their list, just like they did the Oath Keepers and over a thousand others on the January 6 rioters.
0: The Proud Boys were formed in 2016, the, like a, like a, and that year's presidential little, election like galvanized little, them.
2: When you see the rise of the Proud Boys, when you see the rise of a candidate like Donald Trump,
0: you might say they're both symptoms of the same problem. People are fed up with what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis.
2: The three-month-long trial provided a disturbing glimpse into the Proud Boys' activities. They basically behaved like angry weekend warriors. But every day of the week? Text messages and internal group chats revealed a toxic mix of machismo, homophobia, bad jokes, and misogyny. I'm a Western chauvinist and I refuse to apologize for creating a modern world. Chauvinist doesn't mean
0: sexist, chauvinist means extremely patriotic. Things that will save America, give everyone a gun, venerate the housewife, recognize the West is the best, shut down the government.
2: The jury was also treated to hours of audio tape where Proud Boys can be heard engaging in casual anti-Semitism, like you do when you're a fucking Nazi sympathizer. And apparently
0: they really like to party, but that's all over now. It came from one of the defense attorneys. He argued to the jury, ladies and gentlemen, Donald Trump's statements, let's go to the Capitol and I'll be right there with you. Let's march to the Capitol. Fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Now go to the Capitol and stop the steal. The defense attorney argued, ladies and gentlemen, those statements will be government exhibit number one in the future criminal prosecution, caption, United States of America versus Donald Trump.
2: Step by step, the DOJ is getting closer to the sore losers who activated the violent militias who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Roger Stone, Mark Meadows, Rudy Colludi, Drunken Giuliani, and the gang. So tick, 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 motherfuckers. It's just a matter of time before they reach the dawn.
0: I ask you a question? I don't have to answer, it's personal. am not speaking of you, but more in general of ladies. When they go to the ladies' room and powder their noses, is there actually nose powdering going on? Sometimes. Ooh, I like the sound of that.
2: And here's a sidebar. More is coming out about Tucker Carlson. And that's all I have to say about that, because more will be coming out about Carlson for years to come. I'm sure that the history books will recount how the Fox News propaganda machine and fucker Carlson tried to topple our democracy. But today, let's remind Tucker of one simple truth. The Proud Boys weren't just a bunch of peaceful Americans touring the Capitol, and neither were the Oath Keepers. They are convicted seditionists. And if I had my way, fucker you would be too. The crowd was enormous. A small percentage of them were hooligans. They committed vandalism. You've seen their pictures again and again. But the overwhelming majority weren't. They were peaceful, they were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists, they were sightseers. Footage from inside the Capitol overturns the story you've heard about January 6th. Protesters
0: queue up in neat little lines. They give each other tours outside the speaker's office. They take (laughs) cheerful selfies and they smile. They're not destroying the Capitol. They obviously
2: revere the Capitol. Now, if you're wondering what Donald Trump is up to, well, he's mincing around the fjords with Scotland, talking to reporters and telling them that he's on his way back to the US where he will face E. Jean Carroll and vanquish her vicious rape allegations. Now, you gotta wonder how his lawyers feel about
0: that. I have to go back. That made a false accusation about me, and I have a judge who's extremely hostile. And I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna confront this woman. This woman is a disgrace, and it shouldn't be allowed to happen in our country. Because on
2: Wednesday, Joe Taco Penis told the judge in the case, the Honorable Lewis Kaplan, that Trump would not be gracing the court with his presence. So there must be some sort of a mix up. But there are lots of reasons that they shouldn't put Trump on the witness stand. Well, first of all, he has zero self-control. And second, he's a fucking pathological liar. The defense hasn't presented a single witness, so Trump, if he does show up, will be like a one-man show, but not the sort of show that would be any good for the defense.
0: I don't even know who the woman, let's see, I don't know who, th- it's Marla.
2: You're saying Marla's in this
1: photo?
0: that's marla yeah that's that's my wife
1: which
0: woman are you pointing to No. here carol. oh so the that, person oh, you just pointed to was oh, e. I see. carol who is that who is this
1: point and the person the woman on the right is your then
0: wife i don't Toronto? know this was the picture oh. i assume that's john johnson is that that's Carol? because it's very blurry
2: now on thursday the jury was shown a deposition video of trump confusing carol with his ex-wife marla maples So much for, I mean, she's not my type, right? In the deposition, he says repeatedly, she is a sick person, in my opinion, really sick. There is something wrong with her. Trump also mocked two other women who have come forward and accused him of sexual misconduct. That's Jessica Leeds and Natasha Stoinoff, calling them phony and ridiculous. Let's listen to just some of what the jury listened to
1: when you said in that video that ms Leeds would not be
0: your first choice you were referring to her physical looks correct just the overall not I, I look at her i see her i hear what she says whatever you wouldn't be a choice of mine either to be honest with you i hope you're not insulted i would not under any circumstances have any interest in you i'm being i'm honest when i say it uh she i would not have any interest in
2: by all accounts Carol's team has presented a very measured and honest case, and the jury is already in her corner. Testifying in person on Thursday was Carol Martin, a longtime friend of E. Carroll, who was one of the two people that E. Jean told about the attack shortly after it happened. Martin said that she advised Carol not to report the incident to police because he has lots of attorneys. He would bury her. She said that she now regrets giving Carol that advice. And she says, and I quote, I am not proud of that. As for Carol's rape claim, Martin then further said, I believed it then and I believe it today.
3: After calling 11 witnesses, E. Jean Carroll rested her battery and defamation case against former President Donald Trump. Now, Trump's attorneys also rested their case outside the presence of the jury, but in an unexpected twist, the judge said he will give Trump until 5 p.m. on Sunday to change his mind about testifying. The judge cautioned that he might not allow it, but he was providing the window for Trump to possibly reopen his case since Trump publicly stated while on a trip to Ireland that he was returning to the U.S. over a false accusation. The judge said he is Right to testify, which has been waived, but if he has second thoughts, I'll at least consider it.
2: Closing arguments are scheduled for Monday. This is one of the dumbest things ever. And it looks like Trump's lawyers are going to try and move the Stormy Daniels hush money case Manhattan to a federal court. On Thursday, Trump's attorney Todd Blanche told New York judge Juan Mershon that Trump's legal team would file a motion later in the day to seek to move the case. The attempt to change venues is most likely a long shot. They'd like to undercut Alvin Bragg's strong case against the former president who pled not guilty last month to get a load of this 34 felony charges of falsifying business records with the intent to conceal illegal conduct connected to his 2016 presidential campaign. So my friends, stay tuned.
1: Former President Trump will appear on CNN next Wednesday as part of a New Hampshire town hall moderated by Caitlin Collins. Trump will take questions from Republican primary voters. In the Granite State, it's his first appearance on CNN since 2016.
2: But did you know Trump has got the go-ahead to do a town hall on CNN? I mean, what? as preposterous as that sounds he's running for president and even though he claims to hate cnn he's willing to use their platform to promote his candidacy anyway it's got everyone talking including the ladies of the view and
0: i always thought town halls were meant for us to get to know a candidate and what they stand for so what is the point of this new town hall that
1: he's doing and and did we learn nothing from les moonvest saying bad
0: for the country, but great for the network. Well,
1: that's what I'm so disgusted by. Because, uh, again, when someone shows you who they are, you believe them. When you show that you are an insurrectionist, that you're a liar, that you're a bigot, that you're a racist, sexist. that you're sexist, sexist. that you're uh, twice a peach, that you are currently a criminal defendant, and likely to be a criminal defendant in two other jurisdictions. Yeah. I know everything grab, I need. And you grab, and, and you, grab, you grab women by their genitals.
2: I know everything I need to know. And then there is the bizarre antidote that comes to us from the Washington Post, and I quote. Most nights at 9 p.m. rioters incarcerated for storming the Capitol flicker the lights in their D.C. jail cells as a signal to supporters outside that it's time to sing the Star-Spangled Banner all together. I mean, what the actual fuck? Apparently, the recital has become a sacred ritual for a subset of Trumpers devoted to heroizing domestic terrorists. To work from the fuck the government. Fuck their bullshit tyrannies acting! Defend the Constitution! You took an oath! We don't want Biden! Our people love those people, Trump said recently at a rally. What's happening in that prison, it's a hellhole. These are people that shouldn't have been there. I mean, really? This delusional, and then there's this. Glorification of fake patriotism is what makes Trump's cult so successful. They live in another reality where they are wrongly imprisoned, in their opinion, good oh, guys. You the so we Unbelievably, there are videotapes of rioters singing that are being passed around the Trump rallies and the audio for a new single entitled Justice For All was recorded by a bunch of January 6th inmates who had decent acoustics in their cells. I mean, I guess, right? And you can't make this up, folks, but the finished track premiered in March and it quickly hit number one on iTunes and made it to the Billboard charts. I mean, it's un believable And so they have a hint. But if these guys were real patriots, they'd donate the proceeds to slain Officer Brian Sicknick's family or others who were injured really badly during their attack on January 6th. But they are not real patriots and never will be. At least Trump will have company when he finally goes to prison himself.
1: And next to the US Supreme Court, which is facing an ethical dilemma, lawyers and lawmakers are calling for the high court to adopt an ethics code of conduct after justices clarence thomas and neil gorsuch were accused of violations chief justice john roberts declines to discuss the matter with congress and now the independent senator angus king has introduced new bipartisan legislation the supreme court code of conduct act if it's passed, it would require the High Court
2: to establish its own ethics code. And here's more in a story that we've been following. Just when you think Clarence Thomas can't sink any lower, he does so, and in spectacular fashion. ProPublica broke this story on Thursday, saying for two years, Harlan Crow paid for Thomas's adopted nephew to go to a fancy private school. I mean, sound familiar? Well, It should. Alan Weisselberg went to Rikers Island for a similar tuition situation that he'd cooked up with the Trump Organization. But unlike Weisselberg, Thomas will probably avoid consequences, at least for now. And not because he's not guilty, but because he's a Supreme Court judge.
1: Now, Democrats say this is a clear violation that Thomas should have disclosed all of that, including this most recent uh, uh, revelation about the tuition payments. As I said, though, Republicans say, well, look at the rules. The rules say that you only have to disc- disclose gifts to children or stepchildren, and this is his grandnephew. So we're kind of in this like dance, partisan dance here in Washington, which it always kind of seems to be this way. Uh, between Democrats saying that Thomas should have done more and this violates the rules, Republicans saying, no, the rules are kind of cl- unclear. Uh, and this is an effort to smear Thomas and undermine the court.
2: A Thomas supporter said, And I quote, This malicious story shows nothing except for the fact that the Thomases and the Crows are kind, generous, and loving people who tried to help this young man. But ethics advisors feel differently. All he had to do was to just fucking disclose how the kid's education was being paid for. But Thomas doesn't play by the rules, and so he's managed to avoid any consequences for his actions.
1: Yeah, but but according to this latest uh, report this morning that's in the Washington Post, uh, in 2012, Jenny Thomas was um, actually uh, received payments from something called the Judicial Education Project. Uh, And that payment, that was arranged uh, by Leonard Leo. Leo is one of the most influential conservative activists in Washington. He's behind most of the confirmation and nominations of the current uh, conservative justices on the Supreme Court. And he instructed that the paperwork for those payments have no mention of Jenny Thomas's name. He says that was because he was trying to protect her privacy, uh, but is raising a lot of questions already this morning.
2: So, he may ultimately avoid accountability, and maybe he doesn't give a shit, but he's lost the respect of the American people. And when you are a public servant, that should matter. Because, Thomas, you work for us.
1: In this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the (laughs) you can do anything.
0: That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that that they can grab women by the Well, that's what, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately.
1: And you consider yourself uh, to be a star?
0: I think you can say that, yeah.
2: And now for the main event. We welcome to our show, legal scholar and advocate, Jennifer Taub. Taub is the author of the best-selling book, Other People's Houses, and is formerly an Associate General Counsel of Fidelity Investments. She is considered a leading expert on the financial crisis of 2008, and she's a frequent commentator on corporate governance and financial reform matters. Taub is a graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School, where she is currently a visiting professor. Taub is also a professor at Vermont Law School, where she teaches contracts, corporations, securities regulations, and white collar crime. Taub's advocacy promotes transparency and opposes corruption. And as she likes to say, it's all about following the money. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Jen, it's great to have you back especially right now with the debt ceiling crisis on the horizon. Now, you're an expert on corporations and business. Let's just say, let's just hypothetically say that Republicans stupidly play hardball and then we default on our national debt. What will that look like for not just our economy, but the global economy, the world economy?
3: Oh, my God. I haven't even pictured that happening, but if you're asking me, it would be worse than any depression we've seen. And I think the S would hit the fan so quickly, our heads would spin. I mean, the immediate, because something like that happening is so catastrophic that, you know, similar to what happened in the 2008 crisis, any single business would instantly draw down any major line of credit it would have, right? Businesses have lines of credit that are syndicated across other banks. So suddenly everyone would be drawing down every, you know, everyone would be trying to get liquid as fast as possible. The whole system would, would collapse. I mean, I just think, you know, of course there's ways to shore this thing, these things up, but you know, it would look a lot like, you know, instant unemployment, you know, a combination between what we saw during COVID and what we saw during 2008, it's really not even a game of chicken. I think they some of them actually want to do this because I think it will help them win an election, and they'll just point their fingers at the you know the current president and and his party, even though it's not his fault. It's outrageous, But I don't think it's going to come to that because I do think there are measures um that uh, Treasury could point to, and Biden could point to as a somewhat last resort, which would be the constitutional challenge. Right there's this part of the Fourteenth Amendment for those people who actually care about the Constitution that would suggest that the congressional debt limit might not be constitutional. I mean, the real question is, you know, what would this Supreme Court do? Um, you know, but they are under such siege right now that I hope they would do the right thing if 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 that came if that came to occur. My bigger concern, Michael, is that the Democrats are going to cave out of fear, and this is a reasonable fear. And, and give in to the substantial budget cuts that would hurt, um, hurt the middle class and poor.
2: Yeah, I mean, this doesn't make any sense to me. First of all, our Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, has been very clear and warned that the country could go into default as early as June 1. Now, I've heard yeah. a dozen different people say that there could be a loss of approximately, if not more than 8 million jobs that have been created, all right? That's just the very tip of the iceberg, right? Um, You're talking about sending shockwaves throughout the entire global financial market. Let's not forget that there are foreign countries that own a substantial amount of our debt. You know, I'm not sure... To be very honest with you, if most of the Republicans that are right now in Congress even understand what the debt ceiling is, I really don't think that they fully understand. I mean, I I know that according to numbers, we're at, what, $31.4 trillion. That's where our debt, you know, um, that's the debt ceiling. And it appears that we are— dangerously close to those numbers to reaching the 31.4 trillion dollar number you know this goes back all the way to world war one the whole debt ceiling is basically just meant to give what a blanket authorization for the treasury department to borrow money in order to spend money on things that we need so here's just a little bit of a of a factoid right It's not like this is the first time that, you know, we're speaking, you know, Republicans and Democrats about lifting the debt ceiling. I mean, this is actually fairly routine. Since 1960, Congress has raised the debt ceiling 78 times. All right. 78 times. Well, I mean, think about it. But also the
3: value of money. There's natural, you know, they build natural um, inflation into the economy to encourage people to spend, right? That's a built-in. And so the value of the dollar as it decreases over time, you know, stock market goes up, all these things happen. They have to, they have to raise a ceiling as the value of the dollar over time declines. Also, as we spend for necessary things. And, you know, yes, you're right. So here's
2: the interesting factoid. Since they raised the ceiling 78 times since 1960, if in fact they only raised the debt ceiling once a year, we'd actually be in the year 2038, right? Which We're not, which means that we've raised the debt ceiling more than once in certain years. In fact, going back to another factoid, under Republican presidents, they've raised the debt ceiling 49 times. All right. Under Democrats, 29 Mm. times.
3: Yeah. I mean, this is the whole thing the Democrats get. We all get, you know, I'm a Democrat, but my party leadership gets squeamish because it's that game. They're always being accused of being fiscally irresponsible when they're the more responsible party. And that gets them to back off um, doing the things that they were elected to do.
2: I mean, at the end of the day, our national debt is derived because we spend more money than we collect in taxes, hence the deficit. And so the country borrows money. Right. And that unfortunately accumulates over time and that becomes our debt. But this is a choice. So
3: like I just I mean, just I got two things to say, one historical and then one by analogy to a household budget, which I hate to do, but it's helpful in some cases. So, you know, you talk about World War One, you know, we went off essentially, you know, in World War Two and then even beyond into Nixon, um, Well, actually starting with FDR, there was a. A decoupling of our paper currency from gold. And that decision is actually a good decision for keeping economies going. And so it's not like when people talk about, well, you know, we owe this money. Um, the way we can and, and what will we do to get more money? I mean, the Fed, which it has done before, the Federal Reserve can essentially, you know, print money. It's on a, a digital balance sheet. It just creates money into the economy. Um, and Obviously, um, this is, you know, I don't want to get into the mechanics and plumbing of of how this works, but the Fed has been increasing its balance sheet tremendously over the years after the financial crisis and going forward. But so far, if we create too much money to pay back our debts, that will create a problem in the world because we don't want to create inflation is one thing and people who have... Get payback in U.S. dollars. Want them to have strong purchasing power, not be weaker. And so there's this balance, and this is a this is about this the global issues you talk about. Because you know, back in World War II, the U.S. gained its international supremacy because of the strength of the dollar. I mean, the new economic order that came in after World War II is still fairly much in effect. And what the Republicans would do is destroy that. This is like the most anti american thing you could do to to actually default for the first time i don't know it wouldn't just be an immediate problem we would lose our credibility as the you know as the reserve currency for the world and that would just give space to countries like china uh to move in and other countries to be more trusted it would change the whole balance of power in the globe i mean to the an analogy thing real quick which is like you said, people don't, in Congress and others don't fully understand that we are raising the payback existing debts. It's the equivalent, and I don't love households because I can't print money, but here's a good analogy. What if I owe, you know, I bought a new car and I owe on my credit card, I owe on my home mortgage, and I hired someone to do something, and I, let's say I've got to pay my agent for my books, I owe a bunch of money, I've made commitments, and let's say my monthly commitments to pay are more than my, salarate the law school. I've got to figure out how to how to pay that, right? So one way to do it is get another job, but there are only so many hours in the day. And the other way might be to borrow money. Let's say I happen to be so lucky that I owned a, like a $2 million house on the Cape. I would love that. And let's say I owe no money on that. I owed it outright. Well, one way to pay my monthly bills would be to take out a mortgage, right? Against that house on the Cape. You know about home equity lines of credit. I mean, you know, we all know about that, not to bring up that topic, but this is what people do. And I could do that. But it's like me saying, no, I'm going to default on my credit card payments and I'm going to default on my mortgage I live in. And I'm not going to pay people I promised money to because I don't want to borrow against my house from the Cape. That's equivalent to what the Republicans are. They want America to be a bunch of deadbeats.
2: Look, the Republicans, I think, are really making a horrible, horrible mistake here. And I think it will ultimately cost them not just any shot at the White House, but literally down ballot as well. And I'll tell you why. People don't understand what are the factors that really contribute to our debt. And it could really be broken down into three different chunks of money, right? The first of the federal programs, such as Social Security and Medicare. If the Republicans force this, and that's called mandatory spending, because they operate you know, as it's been referred to an autopilot and it doesn't have to be approved each year in the budget. It's already in the budget, all right? The problem, mm-hmm. of course, is that people are living longer and that there's more money that needs to be paid out. Republicans fucking around with the debt ceiling right now, forgetting about what it's going to do to the U.S.'s um, interest rate, right? What it's going to do for us to oh, borrow well, that money. Too, right? The cost of borrowing and the, the future, of, yes, and so of on. Putting all that aside. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, these things, there'll be no money to fund them. So all these people that are relying upon their Medicare and Social Security payments will not get it. And I want to be very clear about it. If, in fact, that happens, know that this shit is happening because the Republicans are the ones that are playing around with the entire debt ceiling which, of course, includes mandatory spending. And that accounts for 63% of the total budget is mandatory spending. People don't realize how big a number that mandatory spending actually is. Now, then again, you have other programs and all of that falls under something called discretionary spending. And that makes up about 30% of our budget. And, you know, that... That's where the lawmakers each and every year, they get to weigh in on, you know, whether they want to or they want to fund it, defund it. They want to cut back onto certain programs and, you know, by how much. And this is what the fight is really about. However, another thing that people have to take into consideration is that discretionary spending, the biggest chunk of it, and it's more than half of discretionary spending is on defense. Now, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on right now in our, not just our country, right, but really around the world. There's a lot of money being spent on defense. Let's also not forget that COVID has caused a whole slew of issues here in terms of spending. Nobody thought uh, about COVID relief and COVID relief didn't just take place during the Trump administration. It also took place. During the Biden administration. Now, I will say that during the Trump administration, last I read, there's still about $1 trillion of money from the COVID relief that is unaccounted for. I want people to let that soak in on. Say that number again. One tr- what is that number? $1 trillion they cannot account for. Seriously? Wait, one trillion
3: is that? Is that the one with twelve zeros? It sure is
2: one trillion dollars. So you know, I mean, the fact that under the Trump administration it was so poorly administered. Well, what did you think was going to happen when, for example, like Kushner, you know, uh, puts in for PPP money of that was that 14, 15 million dollars for his companies. However, we ultimately learn after, you know, they all leave that he and Ivanka, that they pulled down six hundred and forty million dollars during their four years uh, there in the White House that she got how many uh, Chinese patents, you know, trademarks, um, you know, approved. While she was there, I mean, this is really absolutely wrong. And, you know, some of the discretionary money we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, transportation, housing, food, you know, for programs for children. It's pennies compared to our defense budget. It's pennies compared to Medicare and Social Security. And the fact that they're even talking about this, you see already the ripples in the stock market that's taking place right now, and it will only get worse. Imagine the very first time, the first time that the U.S. is potentially going to default.
3: There's some people who are going to make money on that, though, people buying volatility. But, you know, when you're talking about the skimming and the who knows where the money went and some of it, you know, folks uh, that you mentioned pocketed stuff they probably weren't entitled to, and then more. Um, It reminds me that your former boss's favorite musical uh, was Evita, apparently, mm-hmm. he said. And there was this song. I mean, I, I actually like that musical, too. And there's this song uh, called And the Money Kept Rolling In. And it's kind of describing how under the pretense of helping people, Ava Peron would like, uh, you know, that money would just kind of get skimmed out into one of her side funds. And it's like uh, there's this line. um, that I love. It, when the money keeps rolling out, you don't keep books. You can tell you've done well by the happy, grateful looks. Accountants only slow things down. Figures get in the way. Uh, Never been a lady loved as much as Ava Perone, and that's his whole scam. It's always been his scam. That's you know he finds these you know small pockets where people like his Trump University, you know people who are going to give him money, or he found he found the biggest you know mark of all, which is the American people, because then he has access like you're saying, whether it's the COVID funds or whatever. And then, you know, I mean, the only good thing about Ivanka and Jared getting that money and also probably, you know, getting that chunk of money investing from, or at least Jared from Saudi Arabia, is maybe that's why Ivanka has her own lawyer. Maybe she's going to save her skin and flip. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah,
2: who knows? But, you know, I just want to remind people that, you know, the the last time that we came close to a default was in 2011. And even though that we didn't, I want people to remember that the United States was downgraded right from triple A credit rating to um double A I plus. Remember. Uh well, you know, that and that close. actually yep. caused an increase in uh you know how much interest what we pay on our debt, which of course is stupid. If you're not going to hold them onto the debt ceiling, then why putz around with our credit rating? Now If in fact that it does happen, first of all, again, you know, government workers, they're not going to work because they're not going to get paid. No government worker is going to get paid. They're the first ones. How
3: can you go to work, right? How can you go to work if you're not getting paid? You got to go somewhere else, right?
2: Right. And then social security recipients, not going to get paid. So if you're a listener and you work for government or you're a social security recipient, you will go unpaid as a direct result.
3: Or your parents. Think about your parents going without their check. Then where's that going to come from?
2: I was going to get into that one too, right? Of course, the, you know, your parents or your friends, everyone's going to start coming to everybody to borrow whatever money that they have. It's going to be impossible to borrow money. And absolutely, according to all economists right now, a recession would be all but certain. Is this really what we want? Yeah. And let's
3: just think about even us talking about this and worrying about this. The minute it happens, I mean, the first thing you do, right, you, anything you are planning, any vacation, even if you put money down, you cancel everything. You go through your, you know, your cable bill and you say, do I really need all these stations? I mean, every single thing that people do is going to halt spend. You know, it, it becomes a negative spiral. One thing leads to another. You know, we're, we're a web. An economy is a web. And economy is also about confidence. Um, you know, the idea of, of uh, losing the confidence of the world by doing this, but also the confidence of every single person in the country freaked out about trying to make ends meet.
2: So look, Biden has, for the most part, he's been avoiding engaging in any discussion so far with McCarthy about the debt ceiling. What do you think that Biden can do to keep us from the default?
3: You know, I don't know what he's doing behind the scenes, right? Because I haven't um I just haven't read enough to know about what his team is doing beyond um, you know, you know, Janet Yellen is saying the words she's saying. You know, I know they've already been shuffling things around already, right? To try to right. pay things in certain orders. You know, they're already doing, you know, people are rolling up their sleeves right now to stave this off. But she has said June one. And last time I looked, it was May. In fact, it's May the 4th and I'm not going to make a May the 4th joke, but um, when we're talking today, but uh, yeah, I mean, we are inside of a ticking time bomb. And the question is, you know, right now he needs a hostage negotiator and I hope he's got one in there dealing with this. And, you know, McCarthy, you know, what we're seeing recently, we're finding out, right, that uh, he was taking his cues from Tucker Carlson. Is that what we were seeing recently? Mm-hmm. That's I don't know if you're following that. So, you know, you know, Kevin McCarthy, more than anything else, wanted to be Speaker of the House. The question is, is that enough for him, or does he feel like he needs to stay in that, that job? You know, if he's doing what he's doing um, because he thinks that's the only way he can stay in power, then I don't know, you know, I think you've got to come up with every negotiation technique you have to change the numbers
2: on these votes. McCarthy is like a... You know, he's like a juggler on a tightrope. Any one Republican can move to have him, um, you know, lose his speakership. So he yep. doesn't know if he's going left. He doesn't know if he's going right. He doesn't know if he should stay on the tightrope. He should fall off. He's everywhere and nowhere. But this is bigger than him and it's bigger than his speakership because this is an absolute catastrophe. For this country. And I'll tell you what, I'm somewhat disappointed when it comes to this administration, when it comes to Biden. I'll tell you what I would do if I was Biden right now. Because it's not just about ensuring the debt ceiling doesn't take place, that the default doesn't take place, but it's also about the upcoming elections. Why is he not doing a Mm -hmm. message from the Oval Office sitting at the desk? And explaining this to the American people, this would be on every single station, because the president is speaking, and he turned turn around and have the same conversation that you and I, and he points his finger at Kevin McCarthy and says, I can't, I can't speak to them. I think that he's keeping his
3: powder dry, and we're getting close to that date. In other words, once you do that, what's the incentive for them to turn it around? I don't know. I mean, I I, I don't know enough about um, what the real conversations are happening behind the scene and whether it's quite possible, Michael, that they have a real deal they can trust with McCarthy, but that he has to play it out like this. So he seems macho. I don't know. You know, the sad thing is, as you point out, that this kind of personal ambition, personal interest and ego is, you know, that our whole credibility as a nation is hanging on that kind of thread, you know, and that people like and hanging on the fact that they kept someone like George Santos in Congress. Right. I mean, there are all these different things about these pieces of things, the coalition that's being held together to hold, you know, our budget hostage and to actually lead us to a potential catastrophic default is these people who shouldn't even have a voice or if they have a voice in Congress, shouldn't be serving their own personal ambition instead of the needs of the people of the United States.
2: They don't care. And that's what Biden needs to do. He needs to get there. And, you know, you put it perfectly well that, you know, it's the credibility of the United States of America that is now at risk. Three times under the Trump administration, Democrats raised the debt ceiling. You know why? Why? Because it's the right thing to do. That's the message that this guy needs to put out there. He can't sit back. He can't sit on his hands and let them push us day to day to day. By the time that this bullshit ends up, whether it happens or doesn't, the stock market will be down to zero. People will have lost their 401ks, at substantial amounts of money. You know, I don't understand what they're waiting for. And you're right. It was originally supposed to be May 4th. Instead, they, they're doing some very interesting accounting and moving money around, and that's going to buy them three weeks until the June 1 date. That's really what it is. How could he not be out there right now turning around and saying, what are you talking about? And it brings me to my next question, right? Could you imagine? We know that Republicans want to cut social spending. That's something Biden should be talking about. Let the American people, those that may be potential voters for these, you know, these runaway Republicans, right, let them now be concerned about their next election. Because look, if I'm not mistaken, cutting social spending is not going to help our economy. Now, to my knowledge, the old Republican norms of no regulations, trickle-down economy, and no social programs or healthcare. They have not worked in the past. They've been proven not to work. So why is it that they keep going back to them again and again and again? You know that's the definition of insanity.
3: I, uh, you raise a, a excellent issue, and um, maybe I'm a little bit in denial, but I'm hoping this resolves itself because you know it's the unimaginable. Um, and maybe right now, what's happening is you know, like you said, you just have to pick off pick off one Republican who's willing to challenge mccarthy speakership i don't know where the votes are in terms of raising um raising the debt ceiling you know who has whipped those votes but i don't know how many people they need but this should be like retail politics where they're going person by person um to educate people um but again you know i think sad to say i think there are some people who want republican leadership even if that meets donald trump one republican house and senate even if we are a banana republic, they want power. You know they would rather have complete power, single party power over a weakened um humbled uh less trustworthy United States than move forward with um you know what the the majority of the public wants, which is the agenda of the democratic party
2: yeah it, it makes again, it makes no sense to me, and I continuously say that the Democrats my you know and I've been a Democrat virtually my entire life, we're terrible at messaging. We're just terrible Mm -hmm. at messaging. If if Trump was right now in office, let me be very clear what he would do. He would be holding a press conference every single day, and he would be holding the speaker, at that time Pelosi, accountable for everything that goes wrong. Number one, he doesn't take accountability for anything. It's always somebody else. And so looking... Down the road, right, foreshadowing what could possibly happen and being someone that refuses to take any accountability for anything. Well, what do you want me to do? I'm just the president. I don't get to make the decisions by myself. We have a tripartite system and Congress is the one that needs to raise the debt ceiling. He would be blaming it it on everyone other than himself.
3: You know, I can't speak to what might be going behind, on behind the scenes, but I can say to you that if I were president, I would be out there saying this. And I would just say, bottom line, America has honor. We're not a deadbeat country, and the Republicans are trying to destroy our credibility, destroy our honor just to score political points, and they, you know, they, they have to stop.
2: See, I would turn around and I would go even yeah. further. I don't care about the honor. Amongst the rest of the world, because look, when if this happens, China's going as you said is going to step in. Japan will step in. You know, a, I hear you. Another country. You're
3: talking about the very ordinary people. You're I'm, absolutely. I'm right. worried. No. I'm worried what? about
2: John and Jane Doe, government employee, Medicare, Medicaid recipient, Social Security recipient, not being able to get a check. Not being able to put food on their table, turn the electricity on, getting evicted. Rent. That's right, right getting pay, evicted from their you know home. pay rent, whatever yep. it might be. I mean, this is just stupid, and the fact that we even are having this conversation for a half hour.
3: I'd be making a video, right? No, but I would say right now, I would be interviewing ordinary people saying what happens if you don't get your paycheck. Yeah, right, and just like having the and having that ready, and right pushing that out. The way they did with when people what were those those video those TV commercials when they people didn't want socialized medicine and they had that the couple that was always on TV yeah
2: right I mean you got you got to get something you got to get something like that going
3: right because it's too abstract you're right even me I'm talking about global honor well that's an abstraction food on the table not being evicted
2: medication being able to I mean even assuming medication, that your medication right. is generic you're only paying five dollars as a copay. You know, five dollars when you don't have a single dollar in your pocket is like I having know, a million dollars. Right. Exactly. And nobody's thinking about. Do you this. eat,
3: or do you pick up? Do you eat, or do you pick up your medicine? Do you have all the lights off in the house and no air conditioning in the summer and nothing because you can't even get by? You're right. No, it's it's terrible. What what they're facing, what they're fa- putting us through. So, Jen,
2: have the Fed's rate hikes actually done anything to cool the economy and make anything better? And more importantly, in your opinion, you think that this latest rate hike that we just saw yesterday—that this will be the last one that we'll see for a while?
3: Well, I hope it's the last one we'll see for a while. If you look at the charts that the New York Times put up yesterday uh, when Powell announced the rate hike, by the way, when I heard this, all I my tweet was "ug," um, but right? when you look at the chart, we're we're nearing the territory where when you get to that level of interest rates, uh, you get into a recession territory. Um, The problem is that, you know, monetary policy should never be a substitute for fiscal policy, which is to say, just um, trying to, and and to fight inflation. We saw, you know, everyone thinks what, um, everyone claims that Paul Volcker did was great. It was terrible, um, jacking up, letting interest rates rise up into the 20%. Um, You know, he did that supposedly to break the back of inflation, but you also broke the backs of the savings and loan. You also put, you know, America into a recession, You created all these other problems. And it's kind of like, you know, you know, it's kind of like taking a hammer, you know, to if you have a mosquito bite and hitting your hand, well, the mosquito bite's not going to itch anymore, but you're going to have broken fingers. And I think that there are other tools to deal with price inflation. And one of the biggest problems we have with price inflation is monopolization and pricing power. You hear these CEOs bragging to shareholders about how they still have pricing power, and they're raising prices on the kinds of goods and goods and services, food that we need. And you know, it's painful. When I go to the grocery store, I come out with a couple of bags for hundred dollars, and I want to cry. Like it's ridiculous how expensive food is. I get it, but I also know. Uh, that food is so expensive and other things are so expensive because of conglomerates that are, um, you know, getting pricing power. We've also seen recently people don't focus on a lot of the antitrust enforcement, but there has been antitrust enforcement, but just sort of not enough. And this is what happens of years and years and years of changing the uh, theory around antitrust enforcement, allowing these kinds of mergers. Let me give you another example. Cable. There's only really one viable cable outlet that I can get my internet and my television from. Where I'm from, it's called Xfinity now. Now, I don't know how we can all pretend that a a real alternative is satellite where I am or a real alternative is to like maybe get my phone with one thing and then maybe like just whatever it is, it's so flipping expensive. And everything is so expensive. A lot of these things that take money out of people's budgets is because of greed at the corporate level. Um, So I think that we got to stop with the interest rate hikes. It's going to kill jobs. Um, And I know that people like Larry Summers are like, well, you know, people don't have jobs, they'll spend less and then prices will come down. You know, there's got to be there are other ways to do this. And by the way, Richard Nixon, when he did when he saw price inflation, He just put. He instituted caps on certain prices. I'm not saying anyone's going to do that now, but there are some people who have other ideas besides besides continuing to raise interest rates. On the other hand, Michael, if there is a global recession, then Powell does have room to lower interest rates again.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't even honestly, I don't even know, you know, at at this point, what to do. Up, down, up, down. You know, the the increase of of this uh, 25 basis points. It, it's substantial. I mean, it's it's really yes. substantial. I mean, you know, a lot of people are locked in on, you know, on rates that were in the twos and low threes. And now it's going to be the mid to high fives and sixes and sevens, depending upon your credit worthiness. Well,
3: you say locked in, but some people have, you know, what your well,
2: variables. variables, right. Yeah, and that's one of the issues I saw about Trump and so on. Unlike um, Vornado with their properties, uh, you know, these two massive properties. Uh, with like a billion dollars in loans. It's going to cost him an extra $52 million a year based upon the interest rate hikes from, instead of locking himself in, he went in on a variable, figuring how could anything like this happen? But we've seen it now, how many rate hikes? You know, it's, and hopefully it stops. But I want to ask you this because this is a real problem that's going on right now. Every day, right, we're hearing about major banks are having some financial right. problems. And, 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 and it's tied to the interest rate hikes. That's right. And way. three of them went under. So people are rightfully worried. What's happening right now in the banking industry? I mean, these three banks that went under, we're talking about First Republic, Signature Bank, and Silicon Valley Bank, SVB. You know that the, those three banks had more in holdings than in 2008 when we had the other banking crisis which is hard to imagine. Do you think that maybe it's time to rethink how and where we hold our money?
3: Well, let me just back up and say so you know I before I started focusing on white collar crime I was I was focused on the financial crisis of 2008 because before I went into academia I was a lawyer at Fidelity Investments and at one point the head lawyer at the fixed income division so I kind of understood what people were talking about when they talk about overnight wholesale funding. I understood like what when things went down in the fall of 2008, I was rightfully nervous when what was happening and the problems, some of the problems that could have been fixed that were sort of addressed by the Fed um and others that had to have Congress. But one thing that I will tell you as I watched the legislation move through Congress as well as stayed on to um comment in some cases with some um, some think tank organizations on the implementation of Dodd-Frank, I consistently said and have written several pieces saying it didn't go far enough um, to the extent that too big to fail was supposed to end, it still existed, that banks were not just too large in terms of their balance sheets, but they were too leveraged, meaning they owed more to depositors and others than they, their assets were worth. Uh, they were too interconnected. Um, and they were too reliant on short-term wholesale funding. You know, this means that they're not as resilient to things like interest rate shocks and so on. And you look at um, the situation, I mean, I think SVB to some degree was a little unique because of its business kind of focusing on getting its deposits and making loans to a lot of these um, Silicon Valley type, you know, startups and so on. But their story was was similar where it, you know, similar to... um, What I just told you about, you know, to rely on short-term non-sticky funding, this is similar to the savings and loan process too, where SVB had a lot of deposits that were what's called uninsured. Like you and I, if we have money at a bank, we've got our, you know, our FDIC deposit insurance that guarantees for me, you know, I don't even come close, close to the limit, right? And with these folks, they had uninsured deposits, meaning money that was above the FDIC limit, And so if there was any hint that there was trouble at the bank or the bank would fail, folks are going to run with those deposits. And that was part of the problem. Also, uh, big billionaire Peter Thiel told everyone to take their money out, which also makes people take their money out because it's all about confidence. Um, Because what people don't, the the business of banking is what's called maturity transformation. That means, you know, you take in money on a shorter term, like, you know, I can, With a checking account, I can take it out at any time, whereas the bank is making loans or investing in other assets. If it's investing in a 30-year mortgage or it's made a 10-year kind of loan or it's invested in some stock that goes up and down, it doesn't want to sell when it's down. The bank, if the bank is going to have to, if suddenly there are a lot of demands to get your money out, the bank is going to have to sell things at fire sale prices. And ultimately, when SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, failed, the government comes in to encourage someone else to take over the bank. But it guarantees the face value of some of the assets. And the assets Silicon Valley Bank had, unfortunately, were things that lower interest rates. So they were not on an ordinary market if they tried to sell them. Like if you have an asset, if you have a loan that's paying you know, 1% in interest, but new loans that people would borrow from you would pay you 4%, you're not going to be able to sell that 1% loan as high as a rate. It's not yielding as much. And so Silicon Valley Bank didn't manage its interest rate risk. Why? Do You know why they didn't because under Donald Trump um they Congress changed the law to allow banks um to be you know less regulated at a larger size and Silicon Valley Bank grew um from whatever the number was I think it was like 50 billion to over like 200 billion whatever the numbers were I don't have them in front of me assets It grew very quickly without managing its interest rate risk well, without managing its maturity mismatch well enough because of this uninsured deposits, and it grew at all costs. It failed because of, you know, when the interest rates went up, it couldn't, you know, and when people noticed it was high risk, they wanted to take their money out first so they wouldn't be the last standing in line. As for First Republic, First Republic is the second largest bank to ever fail. The first largest was Washington Mutual and the Washington Mutual was a character in my book, Um, Other People's Houses, because Washington Mutual, when it collapsed during the 2008 crisis, it had failed before when it was something called American Savings and Loan. It had been the largest bank to fail in the savings and loan debacle. It got taken over by Washington Mutual. Then Washington Mutual was the largest bank to fail in 2008. And then Washington Mutual, as we all know, gets taken over by Chase. Guess who ta- is taking over First Republic? Yeah. Chase. Yeah,
2: J.P. Morgan right. Chase. So, you know, yep. Jamie
3: Dimon, look, Jamie Dimon is a smart actor. He's, you know, I won't call him a bottom feeder, but I would call him, you know, his bank is opportunistic. It's like clockwork. Um, and, you know, I'm not surprised that there was another failure due to, you know, the same fragility. Banks are inherently fragile. And if you don't require them to have a big enough capital cushion, then they're going to fail. And there's always going to be as much as people also say, oh, well, it's not going to be the FDIC fund because at the end of the day, there'll be an assessment on banks and they will have to pay it back. Well, guess what? The assessment process wasn't really baked into Dodd-Frank. One thing folks like me argued for is let's fund it up front. Just like, you know, let's fund a too big to fail kind of fund in case these banks fail instead of waiting for an assessment later. Because how in the hell are you going to assess banks now when they're all weaker? You're going to wait till much later and then everyone's going to forget about it and it will never happen. And so, you know, once again, we have, you know, socialism for the banks, capitalism for for the rest of us. And, you know, it feels, you know, I just feel like you know these these failures are happening closer and closer and closer together, and yet we all know what the problems are. But Congress just doesn't have the will to fix. Yeah, it.
2: And they need to fix a lot more than that too. I mean, look, there's also PAC West. You know, they stopped trading yesterday simply because that's gonna be the next one that's gonna go under. They're talking about another, you know, another uh SVB. It's another signature bank, you know, that's going under. It's gonna be right. this pack it's gonna be this Pac right. West.
3: In the San Francisco Fed. And the Fed, you know, I have to say my book doesn't just talk about um inherent risk and sort of greed and uh fraud in the banking sector. You know, there's regulatory mismanagement, you know, that they lacks regulators again and again, fail because they're either captured by industry, or there's just something about the mindset. Some of them are good, but the good ones often get pushed out. Um, So, you know.
2: You know, this is a real problem, though. This is a real problem for people like myself. Um, You know, after my conviction, once you become a felon, no banks want to work with you. Despite the fact I've paid millions in taxes, Millions, I don't give a fuck what any of it Southern District, fuck you, Southern District of New York, all right? It was a lie. I never misrepresented shit on a HELOC uh, and so on. And you can read my book, Revenge, on that, and it goes into great detail of the most corrupt action against a U.S. citizen, possibly in our history. But what we also need, we need politicians who are going to try to put forth legislation that banks should not be allowed to refuse a U.S. citizen. They shouldn't. Now, you don't want to loan money to me based upon my credit score is 800. You don't want to, because whatever your parameters are, they throw you out of the banks. And I wonder if Trump was thrown out after his indictments and all. That would be a a, a nice little question for someone to answer. But once you have a indictment or a conviction, the banks drop you like, you know, like a hot potato. And then what are you supposed to do? Well, it appears that all of these other banks, you know, like First Republic, I had money in First Republic. In fact, I had significantly during all this shit in 2017, I had over $2 million in that bank. You know, that would have been all uninsured. And at the, again, at the end of the day, now you see all of these other banks and they're all merging into what will ultimately be a handful. So what do people like myself or people who have other bad credit, what do you what do you do to have even a bank account?
3: Let's taking the the the, the situation of bad credit or felony aside, you know, if you if someone has a million dollars, they can divide it among you know four banks mm-hmm. with two hundred fifty thousand. But that's but there are benefits for having. Or you, in theory, you could put your money in a money market fund. But of course, those aren't stable at a dollar necessarily. People are just. But the, but the difference between a, a money market mutual fund and a bank is the money market mutual funds are required by regulation to manage their assets, they can't have their average weight of maturity has to be, what is it, 90 days or something? I'm forgetting from my years doing this. And they they can't have anything longer than it's like inside of, um, for sure, inside of a year. So their maturity mismatch isn't as high. So if they have to like sell their assets or roll off their assets as they mature, they're not going to face as much of a run. Of course, there was a run in 2008 in the money market funds, which is which is also a problem. So I'm not saying they're fully secure.
2: So my point is, when it comes to this legislation, now you have, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase. They threw me out. So now what's going to happen with my account over at First Republic? Chances are they'll try to do the same thing again. Well, then where do you go, right? I mean, this becomes a problem. So my question, right, if you think about it, where do the banks get their money? Where are they borrowing their money from? Well, from the U.S. Treasury. What supports the- Well,
3: they borrow technically, I mean, they borrow their money from- us right they're borrowing money from um depositors like us but they have a backstop if we run on their banks all deposits are insured by the fdic and then beyond that they have you know they can fdic if the deposit insurance fund runs out they can reach out to treasury i mean right so banks are in a business where they, they some of these banks are really too big big to fail because they're not going to allow them to fail, which is what we've seen again. Yeah,
2: but my point is, you know, they get their interest rate, you know, they borrow at the Fed rate oh. and then they loan it out at a higher interest rate.
3: That's right. I'm sorry. That's right. They can't, absolutely, they do. And then That's what
2: happens right. is, well, where does that money come from? Well, it comes from taxpayer dollars. I've been, I've never not right. paid taxes. Was there a mistake? Yeah. And I still blame Jeff on my former accountant. But what does that have to do with any? I paid taxes. I paid millions in system. I can't have a bank account or any felon for that matter. You don't want to loan him money? That's, that's based upon criteria. I had no and idea. I, and I believe there needs to be legislation because as these smaller banks or these mid-sized banks are folding up and being eaten up by the bigger banks, the first-tier banks, you know, there'll be no place for the millions of people who have felony convictions.
3: Uh, that's interesting. So you're supposed to is you can have a deposit account, but you can't, just can't have any accounts. You can't even have a. De-
2: they will not open up. Huh. They will not open up a bank account for whatever the reason may be. But I want to move on and ask you this, Jen. You've written extensively okay. about the 2008 housing crash. Do you see similarities in what's happening today? Is the housing sector safe now, or is the bubble again about to burst?
3: I have not focused recently on what's happening in the. Rental or the real estate market, so I I can't tell, and I have not focused on what um where home prices are at this time or leverage. I'm in terms of debt. I'm really concerned about student loan debt though, because that is although it's unsecured debt, it's non dischargeable, and we are facing if um the Supreme Court uh, strikes down um, Biden's effort to even to even forgive. The chunk of student loan debt he did—that's going to be a huge blow to the economy and to future spending and to you know young people's ability to you know to make a living, to have housing. So my focus has been on that aspect of of debt. Yeah,
2: and then, so let's let me move to some international you know uh, questions here because the war in Ukraine has put economies all over the world at risk. And now the food crisis that the war has caused could potentially starve whole nations. There's going to be all sorts of issues with money, right? So what, in your opinion, will the economic results be of this protracted war? And do you think that either country can come out of this intact?
3: Either country, meaning Russia Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine?
2: And even the United States, by the way. Because the United States you know we tr- we tried to help out other nations, right? We purchased food and we provided to them well, if there's no money right now in our economy because the debt ceiling cannot be you know cannot be raised or won't be raised, well then what happens to all those other countries? How are we providing them with benefit and assistance?
3: you know, I find um just backing up to the human cost um I find it devastating that you know similar to other peers of history and other egomaniacal leaders. I find it devastating um that uh that Putin is was was and is hellbent on taking back Ukraine. I, I understand that he's disappointed with how things went down after World War II. Um I I look at the senseless tragedy, you know, when this I look at the 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 families divided, I look at the children, the young men, um, the the memories that people have. I mean, I interviewed for my um my podcast booked up Luke Harding. And even living through his eyes, his experience going to this war zone, you know, you know, the the it just it's it's so distressing to me. And that again, that we're spending money on this globe on People fighting each other over territory instead of finding ways for global flourishing, finding solutions to the problems that face us, finding you know you know things like art and sports and families and fun and all the stuff in the world that makes life worth living, and that we are that we are still so primitive as as a world that we are throwing our resources and our, mostly our young men some women too, into harm's way over territory, something that, you know, and it's not just that I understand it's, it's, it's a, it's it's also, you know, political philosophy, but, you know, you know, Putin is, you know, insane murdering maniac. And, and yet this war has gone on and on. I mean, there's no, there's no happy ending. War. you know and i feel no. so, i feel
2: sorry for both sides i feel sorry for not just the ukrainians because that are yeah. being killed my wife was born in the yes. ukraine um you know and um i feel sorry for the russian soldiers too these young too. these young soldiers have yes. no idea what they're going into they're just sent out into the lines told lies and they're they're fighting and what they i heard over 30 plus thousand russian soldiers will not be coming home let me tell you something I know quite a few Russian moms and wives, you know, the old babushkas, so to speak. Let me tell you, when their kids don't come home, Putin's got one big fucking problem on his hand. Because they're not, they don't even know that their kid, uh, you know, or their husbands or so, they don't even know that they're deceased. I mean, you may have seen that they were bringing... Port- they were bringing mobile crematoriums to the fields in order to get rid of the bodies. It is disgusting. I am so with you on that point, right? Shouldn't we be trying to figure out how to make everything in this world better, right? This makes absolutely no sense. But then again, you have people like Robert Kennedy Jr., right? This uh. this guy, and I've had him on the podcast. I don't want to call him an asshole, but when I heard him say that Zelensky could have avoided the war with Putin. I'm saying to myself, and this asshole really wants to be president? I mean, come on. What do you think about that? I mean, was he not provoked into war when Putin invaded his country? What was he supposed to do?
3: Yeah. I mean, he had no choice. And he has unique leadership skills and charisma. And he, you know, he gave me hope for humanity. And yet, as you say, I think... Zelensky did the right thing, and yet I grieve for all the people, you know, who have lost family members to all the people who have had to live through war. I, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, and I blame, in, in, in a good part, Donald Trump for encouraging Putin uh, when he did, because you know Obama had put those sanctions um, related to Crimea, and I think you know I think it was really in Putin's interest. To you know, he wanted to get rid of NATO. All the stuff that he felt, you know, encouraged by. On the other hand, you know, I'm sure he felt threatened and felt this was his time to act. It's just, it's, it's, it's an utter global disaster. Um, and you know, I mean, I only see one way out of it. But even when it's over, um, you know, again, they're no they're, no one wins.
2: Yeah, no one's is right. So why do you think that the tech industry has taken such a bath? In the stock market. I can't believe it. I mean, remember, we've all watched as the tech stocks, and the things that we use every single day. Before it was 100 dollars a share. Now it's down to, you know, $80 or, or $75. It's really lost significant market share. There were so many innovations on the horizon that they're now in holding patterns. What's your take on where the tech sector's headed?
3: I have not looked at individual balance sheets uh, in the tech sector but my suspicion is that you know market value you know what the outstanding shares you know number of outstanding shares times the price reflects what the total market value is but there's often a gap between what a stock what the stock is trade you know the total enterprise value f- the float on the market and what the book value of a of a company would be Because, you know, what a company is worth, you know, its assets less its liabilities is only one way of measuring. People bake in to the stock price expected future cash flows of expected earnings per shares. Investors do that. Now, even if you're an investor and you haven't thought about doing that, the market, you know, in theory, if you believe in efficient markets or at least some version of the efficient market hypothesis, baked into a stock price is what the smartest investors believe the, its future earnings will be so either as expected in terms of dividends or what the share appreciation would be over time, and so then you would have you know capital gains if you wanted them. So that's already baked in. So to the extent that a stock price, the higher the gap is between what its you know book value is um, and versus and what its current earnings are versus what expected earnings are, the gap between that you know as reflected in the share price. It's going to get squeezed if people are less optimistic about the future. That's my technical explanation. But without having looked at particular companies, I don't know why that, the, you know, there's certain things in the tech sector that are sending signals. There's been a lot of layoffs, um, which means, you know, if companies are laying people off, you know, maybe there have been earnings announcements. So I haven't, again, looked at the specifics um, uh, about it, but it seems like that.
2: Let's just take for example Amazon. Who listening to this program right now doesn't get at least one Amazon box every single day? I mean, you know, it's just it's impossible. they right. They just seem to be the delivery system, you know, for the for the country these days, right? You know, one, during
3: COVID though, you know, they, they they had so much more, right? Like well, even as many even if you're getting one box a day, you were getting your whole life through Amazon before, you know.
2: And people are still doing the same thing. I mean, uh you know, within the past 52, um, you know, weeks, the high, uh, say for example, is $146. Now it's at 104. So how did it lose more than 30% of its market share?
3: On Amazon, I do have a theory. So I joke, I teach securities regulation to my that's students. Why I'm asking. And I always joke around at the beginning of the semester, I, I pick a company that's just done an IPO and we follow it's, you know, follow it. So we can kind of look at the registration process, but I always joke around, um, that whenever I purchase a stock, it always goes down. So I have a love and hate relationship with Amazon because on the one hand, it's an incredible company for getting stuff delivered to you. I sell my books through it. On the other hand, I feel bad for local bookstores. So I thought I'd hedge my bets by actually investing in Amazon because I thought if my pattern holds and if I buy Amazon stock this fall, um, if it goes up, well, good, because I'm spending a lot of money on Amazon and maybe it makes me feel better, but it's likely to go down in value. <laughs> and that's kind of you know what happened. So my theory is if I bought the stock, it will go down, Michael. So that happened.
2: So Jen, look, the hour goes by real, really quick, especially when we're enjoying our conversation <laughs> here. Uh, one last question for you. How can the Biden administration rebuild a strong middle class? What's he going to run on? Is it possible? Do you think that any of the policies that the Biden administration has enacted, you know, has helped the economy that he could use as advertisement in this 2024 election?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the stuff he did, his spending on um, and supporting people who've given so much to the country, like his helping veterans in healthcare, I think that's really important. Uh, canceling some, forgetting some student loans because of the pandemic. I think that's huge if you can keep putting it through. Um, I also think to me, if I, you know, had a blank slate, I really believe that we need what I'll call and others have called Medicare for more. It's not socialized medicine, but I think small businesses and ordinary people are hurt by having to pay so much out of their paychecks or out of their budgets for health insurance. I think we need to expand Medicare, just keep lowering the age when you can get it. So it gets, you know, you can't turn this ship suddenly, you know, and I think that has to happen. I think he should be running on doing that. Um, I also think he's got, if he can't get the Supreme Court to approve it, then he's got to get Congress to deal with that. I think also, you know, keeping the pressure on providing full health services to women um, in terms of reproductive freedom. I think that's something really important to run on. And also something I'm working on now is I think we really do need to reform our entire tax system. I'm working on a book on that now. And you know, I think more and more, I'm convinced that it is not just outrageous, but it's, you know, un-American that we tax work first at a higher rate than we tax capital when the last thing we need is more money slashing around. Look what trouble we get into. But I also think that we need to um, simplify the tax system and raise the amount of, um, even the amount of money that that we, you know, I don't think you should be paying a, a penny of tax if your wages don't even pay for, you know, a one bedroom apartment, food, basic, you know, expenses in this country. And I think that that shouldn't, I don't think you should have to even like file a tax return and then get it back. So I have different ideas for, you know, for things that I would do. I think his raising tax creating the minimum tax on corporations was great. You know, I think his big message has to be, you know, these ideas of shared prosperity, freedom because Republicans want to take away our freedom and fairness, you know, rule of law. I think those things are really important. Well, but shared prosperity. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, A- go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say amen to that. I like that shared prosperity.
3: Shared prosperity, freedom, because the Republican Party wants to ban books. They want to tell me how I can dress. If I cut my hair too short, now suddenly I'm not allowed to, like, use the women's restroom or whatever, like, whatever. Like, all this stuff, you know, shared prosperity, freedom, and fairness in this society. And I think that's what we all want.
2: Well, I look forward to that book. Jen, thank you so much for joining me on Maya Culpa. It's so great to see you again. And I will be speaking with you and seeing you again very, very soon. I hope so. Thank you, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. Okay, trans rights. Here's a subject I don't know a whole lot about, but I do know enough to know that when you're clueless, you should probably just shut the fuck up. But it's hard when you see people getting hurt and kids being bullied by adults. The Florida legislature has just passed a bill that allows the government to take children away from their parents if they receive gender-affirming care and Governor Ron DeFascis is expected to sign the bill into law. The man has proved beyond a shadow of doubt that he's the biggest horse's ass, I mean, maybe next to Trump, in the entire country. No, look, I have kids, but they didn't identify as trans, so I can only sympathize with the families going through this. But I tell you what, I believe firmly that how a trans kid is medically treated should be between the child, their parents, and the doctors. There's no need for the government to step in and try to remove another right from our children. I mean, abortion wasn't bad enough that they need to now go and fuck with gender-affirming health care. I mean, we have established a long time ago that they are not a party that values freedom unless it's their own. So, their capacity to understand what trans families are going through, it's just non-existent. As a parent with medical doctors and psychologists behind you, you should have the right to decide if you want to allow your child to hold off on puberty. If that's what they have decided that they want to do. And more importantly, that it's been determined to be safe. But to tell a parent who truly believes that giving their child puberty blockers will be good for them, that they are not free to make that decision, is just fucking insane and it's wrong. And what's with Montana lawmakers who throw an elected official out of chambers because she is trans? Didn't they see the Tennessee Three become the poster people for civil rights in their state? Well, obviously not. Because now Montana has Zoe Zephyr to contend with, and she looks ready for her 15 minutes. Zephyr was barred from participating on the House floor as Republican leaders voted Wednesday to silence her for the rest of the 2023 session. And why? Because she protested GOP leaders' decision early in the week to silence her. The punishment of the freshman lawmaker comes after a week-long standoff between House Democrats and Republicans after Zephyr told colleagues last week, you will see the blood on your hands over votes to ban gender-affirming medical care for children. She still gets to vote from home, but come on, she's being punished for being herself and for her beliefs. And this is still America. I wouldn't tell anyone who they should be. If they bugged me, I'd just ignore them. But I would not expect anyone to change because I'm uncomfortable with who they are. It's childish, and childish people shouldn't be making choices for anyone, particularly our children. And listen, I'm sick and I'm fucking tired of the legislatures in red states working overtime to cancel the rights of others. And by others, I mean everyone who is in a radical Republican. You see, we see you, Montana, and Florida. Oklahoma, you're not okay. Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, why? Iowa, Mississippi, the Dakotas, and I mean both of them. Texas, and all of y'all stay away from people's sexuality. And, well, I say this to you, wake the fuck up. Leave drag queens alone. Don't take your kids to see the drag show if you're so ridiculously, you know, um, Ain't no retentive that she can't handle simple entertainment. I mean, how about the concept of live and let live, goddammit, and give our children a break? It's hard enough to grow up, especially when the adults aren't helping. So good luck to all my trans and queer listeners. We've got your back, and we always will, and we're sorry for what you're going through, and we will be there for you. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.